You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. I suspect that many of us right now have had moments of spontaneously bursting into tears. Some weeks we hold it together, some weeks we don't. This week I started my chat with Barbie Banks with some unexpected sobbing into my microphone Small mercy that we were on an audio-only connection. But shortly after our chat for today's show, I got a newsletter from the musician Yasmin Williams. Yasmin was one of the buskers at True False earlier this year and came on the show to chat. Her newsletter said she had just finished writing her latest album and included a link to a song that she had just finished after six months of being stuck. As yet, it's untitled, she is looking for suggestions, but as her music is always a balm for my soul, I thought we'd start today's show with just a wee segment of Yasmin's song in honour of the Black Lives Matter movement, after which we'll dive straight into my post-sob conversation with Ragtag Cinema's Barbie Banks. Barbie. Just a, just a light discussion. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, sorry about that. 
that no, I'm I'm happy to always talk about it. So So yes, amidst all the grief and anger and love of the past week, the real world has returned to ragtag and cinema has returned to the big screen, which is lovely and scary all at the same time. Yes, we were joking in our staff meeting, like, do we know how to run a cinema anymore? <laughs> Feels like it's been so long. And so we're really excited to be able to open our doors again. So has it already happened? So our first screening is today, Friday at 1130. So um, yeah, we're at the theater ready for everybody to come. And we're opening with two films, Singing in the Rain, the film from 1952, and then Do the Right Thing from 1989, which um, we're letting the community decide. Do you want to see a film that is very topical and hard and going to bring up lots of feelings about the racial injustice that's still happening in our world? Or or a little escapism with Singing in the Rain about a period in Hollywood that was also about change, which was going from silent films to talking films. You wouldn't normally think of it as a double feature, but I think it might be a good one, you know, a little escapism for self-care and then do the right thing. I mean, it's amazing. This film was 30 years ago, and it's almost... It's a story that is still happening and you would hope we would see some change. And I hope we can reflect on our past and move forward and start to see the change that we need. It is a very interesting double bill. And I wonder whether if I was watching it as a double bill, whether I'd want to have the candy first and then brace myself for reality or whether I'd want to like, you know, have the reality first, see, do the right thing, feel all the feels and then disappear into some singing in the rain. I don't know which order I'd watch them in. I know. Well, you know, I watched both of them last weekend just to do the right thing. We actually showed last August with our Como Famous program, but I watched both of them again last weekend and I did singing in the rain, then do the right thing. And it felt like a good little escape and then back to reality of what are we going to do to to heal our community and, and help our um the people of color who are in our lives. I think it's interesting that both Singing in the Rain and Do the Right Thing are both in the National Film Registry for culturally, historically significant films. Singing in the Rain was one of the first films when they started the catalogue in 1989. It's one of the first 25 films selected. And the first year that Do the Right Thing was eligible was 1999, and it was immediately put into that list of National Film Registry I watched Do the Right Thing. I think I've seen it twice. And I feel like every time, I feel like it's a film that you can't just watch once because there are so many layers to it and so many perspectives. And each time you watch it, something new appears. And it depends, you know, in what is happening in the world when you watch it, how hard hitting it is. Yeah, you know, when we showed it back in August. It was a time in Columbia where there were a string of shootings and neighborhoods. Um, and we had a good discussion about that. And the cops weren't really involved in that discussion at the time. It was just like, what can we do to help our communities? What can we help to do with our communities of color? How do we prevent violence? But it wasn't about police violence at that time. And so then this time watching it, it's just a very different lens to think about police brutality and the effect that that has. And yeah, so I agree. And and then there's just the whole other layer of beautiful relationships amongst all the people in this neighborhood. And whether it's a love interest or between Sal and his workers and what 
he's done for the community and how it can quickly turn. And so I think it's a film, you're right, that you have to see multiple times and come at it from very different angles as you watch it. It feels like it's going to be extra hard to watch it this time around, which is why it's even more important that we watch it. I I noticed that Spike Lee had released a short film last week called Three Brothers, which splices together the murder of George Floyd, Eric Garner, and his fictional character, Radio Rahim, who is murdered by the police in the film and whose whose death is really based on a, a real person, Michael Stewart, who was murdered in 1983 by the police. All of them killed through being choked. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you will be showing that either before or after. So we don't have the rights to show it on the big screen, but we do have um, a lot of social media coming out to have people watch that also to put a little context around this film and the importance of it. So you'll see it a lot on our social media and I wish we could show it. We tried to get the rights to show it in the big theater and it was one of those moments where we're like, do we go rogue and just show it? But we think we can still get the message out by putting it on our platforms and get people to, uh, you know, and honestly do the right thing you can watch it on multiple platforms in your home if you want to and while I think seeing it on the big screen is a really important thing I think seeing the film is important and so if you don't feel comfortable coming out rent it on Amazon or find a way to see it because it's really impactful. Why is it difficult to get rights to show that it it seems like it would be something that the distribution company and Spike Lee would really want as many people as possible to see it. Yeah, I think there's honestly, it's just that there is no structure in place for this kind of media, you know, something that's spread through mostly social media. And we just are a little protective of ourselves and want to make sure that we're not doing something we're not supposed to. So we think sharing it on social media is going to be our best way to, to share it with people. I mean, it's very available. I mean, it's not hard to watch online. It's it's really out there. I think, you know, if we were, which we could do this, as I'm coming up with an idea, we could show it and have it as a free screening. But if we show it before Do the Right Thing, we're technically making money off of it. And so right. um, I'll put that in my notebook of to do, because I, I do think it might be a, a great thing to see on a big screen also. I mean, everybody has their smartphones with them pretty much when they go to the cinema. So even if there was just a moment at the beginning when we all put our phones on and watched it collectively, then that would be a shared experience, which is, you know, what is so powerful about watching films all together is the emotion in the room. Yeah. And, you know, we're doing um, so in our big theater, you can just come buy a ticket to these films in our small theater. You can rent it out with a group of people, you know, to maintain your little quarantine group. And I feel like it's a little easier to show it amongst those groups than the bigger open to the, the world crowd. And so I'll make sure we add that into our script that we read before each film, because I do think it's a powerful piece and we want to make sure everybody has a chance to see it. And then also on your virtual cinema, you have three powerful films that are on this week. You have I'm Not Your Negro, which explores the book James Baldwin Never Finished Before His Death. You have Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, and Whose Streets, which looks at the killing of Michael Brown and the Ferguson Uprising, which was a true-false film a few years ago. These are just such powerful films, and I'm sure there are many more. Do you have others lined up over this summer of us trying to better understand what we can do to make the world more just? 
we're kind of doing two different things. One, um, we so we've been doing Ragtag at Home, which is the program for mostly young kids to watch art house films. And there's discussion questions with them. And they've been very light, a lot of cartoons. And, and we're kind of switching gears with that and doing Ragtag at Home with films that we believe are good to discuss racial inequality in our country, whether it be with your children or with your neighbor, your adult neighbor. So you'll continue to see more films released on Ragtag at Home that hit at that topic. We're releasing a whole list of films that you can find on Canopy that we think also help um, with this discussion and just better understanding. And then we will continue in theater to uh, be showing films where we are working on some more titles that will allow for us to use our platform for Black voices, but also for discussion around our community and how we can help it. And then you have some other movies in the virtual cinema screening rooms that are going to be, I think, leaving this week. So then it it frees up the space a little more. Exactly. Yeah. So Hilma of Clint will be leaving, Caro Diario, and then Thomaso will be sticking around for another couple weeks. And then the three pieces from Magnolia, which is a distribution company, I'm Not Your Negro, The Pieces I Am, and Whose Streets. And those three titles, we do get 50% back for renting those. And we are donating all of that to Race Matters Friends. You can also purchase those films as a bundle. So you have them in your library. And 50% of that will come to us, which we'll then in turn give to Race Matters Friends. And I think that's $15 to buy all three which seems yeah. very inexpensive. Yeah, and I Am Not Your Negro, you know, we showed it at True False for the Columbia Public Schools sophomore screening. And it was a film that Peter Stiefelman was, uh, had seen it before and was very nervous about putting that out there for our sophomores. And it was a huge success, just lots of great discussions, good in-classroom discussions and discussions amongst the students. And so I think it's maybe one of the most powerful films that we've shown at the festival and at the cinema. And so I just cannot recommend it enough. That reminds me of a comment that Spike Lee had said that people had been concerned that after showing Do the Right Thing, people would just be inspired to riot and be so angry. And he said, you know, that really bugs the crap out of me because nobody comes out of Arnold Schwarzenegger films and starts killing people. It's just such a racist response. (laughs) Yes, yes. I think you're going to see a lot more. um, We're committed to amplifying the voices of Black creators. You know, there's a lot of stories that are told about the Black community made by white people. And we're working hard to to see beyond that and go to the the people of color who are creating and telling their own stories. Fantastic. Thanks, Barbie. I'll speak to you Thank soon. You. Bye. Bye. From Ragtag, we're going to head straight into another piece of music en route to our next guest, French horn player and assistant teaching professor at the University of Missouri, Amanda Collins. Amanda is one of a group of black musicians who recently recorded a newly arranged version of Lift Every Voice and Sing. So before we chat with Amanda, let's stop off and listen to a song that is also known as the Black National Anthem.
Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on the show to chat. As much as I dislike Facebook for how much of my day I allow it to consume, from time to time, things waft across my feed that are super interesting. And I can't remember on whose feed I saw your shared post about this fabulous new arrangement of Lift Every Voice and Sing. But it was the kind of clickbait that I couldn't resist because (laughs) I have a show about the arts and it was so incredibly beautiful. So tell me about the arrangement we just heard and how the performance came about. So back when the pandemic first started, a lot of musicians and orchestras were sort of put on hold, so to speak. And it became a really convenient time to get together and work on some projects that maybe we've been putting on the back burner because life takes over and there's not a lot of time. And so I got a phone call or a text message from a friend of mine named Titus Underwood, who produced the recording you just heard earlier. And he asked me if I would be interested in getting together with some other black musicians that we know from our network, so to speak. There's a whole network of diversity programs, especially for black musicians. And we all have contacts and friends. And he asked if we wanted to get together just to chat about a a project. So I said, of course, you know, why not? I'm not doing anything else. And of course, I would love to talk about this. So we got together and he brought in um, musicians from all over the country. And we just talked about what was going on in our country with the pandemic. And this is an excellent opportunity to work together on meaningful projects. And so uh, originally we had set out to record a portion of the Strauss Serenade for Winds. And it was mentioned in this meeting that perhaps we should do something that, that features, you know, a strong black composer, black music. And someone said, why don't we do Lift Every Voice and Sing? And so we brought in a composer, Fredo, from Fredo Music, And he did this beautiful arrangement for the instrumentation for the Strauss Serenade, uh, which is pretty unique. And this piece was born. And originally it was just the anthem uh, that everybody knows. But then it took this turn in this middle of of minor keys and modulations and just disruption and chaos. And then it comes back again at the end with the main theme. It was just so powerful. And so we decided because of the pandemic, when you do these projects, you know, the idea is this, we have time, right? Because there's, we're all sitting around and with nothing else to do. And so we decided it was right around the time that George Floyd was murdered. And we thought about it and we said, well, we could put this stress serenade out or we could take this opportunity to align ourselves and show our unity with our black brothers and sisters who are, working to for equity for the black community through the Black Lives Matters movement. And so it just was born from the events happening, the timing. It just it it's spooky how it all really lined up perfectly. It's just but it worked and it was profound. Tell us a little bit about the history of this piece of music. It is it is known as the Black National Anthem, but I'm not sure that everybody necessarily knows about its history. Can you just give us a little brief history on it? Sure. So it's, it's often referred to, as you mentioned, the Black National Anthem. And in fact, when I was growing up, the church that my family attended, it was the name of our hymnal. And so I can remember very clearly going to church and singing out of that book and, of course, hearing that particular hymn over and over again. It was a poem that was set to music and it was written by uh, leaders from the NAACP. And it is 
an anthem, when we think about the meaning of an anthem, right? So it's something that brings people together, that gives people hope, that reminds them of what they stand for and what the, you know, typically with the countries, right? What they stand for. So this is saying, this is what we stand for. We've come through hard times. We will continue on. We will stand up for what's right. And don't forget where you've come from. It's just a way of uplifting people who need to be uplifted. I was reading about uh, Fredo, who is a Ghanaian, Nigerian, American composer. And I think he's based in St. Louis. So that makes it extra fun for us in Missouri. I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. Could you I d- pronounce I don't need, it? I don't. I, and I wish I could. <laughs> I will probably be calling right after this to say, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so I, and he identifies and writes the name Fredo. So that's how I've always called him. And most everyone else has too. <laughs> Um, he just sounds fantastic. And I was looking at his website and just all the awesome music that he has written. And he wrote the arrangement for the piece that you played, which was commissioned by Titus Underwood, who I think is a principal player within Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Principal Oboe. Tell us a little bit about these two musicians who were instrumental in this. Well, I don't know Fredo very well, just because he's a new friend of mine that I met through this project. But I can tell you about Titus. I first met Titus, I can't even tell you, we've known each other for such a long time. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the program, I am affiliated with a lot of diversity-based groups for classical musicians, one of which is the Gateways Music Festival. It takes place at the Eastman School of Music every two years, and Titus is the principal oboe of that ensemble as well. And for as long as I've known Titus, I've known him to be an incredible musician. You struggle to hear some finer musicianship coming from a human being. I mean, he's incredible. But more importantly, he is an incredible supporter and advocate for equity, diversity, inclusion in the arts. And it can be frustrating when you're a musician and, and you feel like your voice, especially in classical music, that this is, I don't know if if you're aware of this or not, but less than two and a half percent of people in orchestras in the United States are, are black. And that is a statistic. It's been the same for 50 years. It has not moved really significantly. And Titus and I and a group of other people were really frustrated by this. So we're constantly thinking of ways of how can we affect change on a high level, lasting change. Mm. And like I said, this has just been the perfect opportunity to really just tell our story and and get the word out of what's going on. And it's all beautifully coming together. And I couldn't be prouder. I know Titus feels the same way. It is a shocking statistic that 87% of orchestras are white. I think it's 9% Asian, 2% Latinx and yeah, less than 2% African-American. And and orchestral boards are the same. They're 92% white if you look at the League of American Orchestras. So how do you navigate that system as a non-white musician? Well, it's a kind of complex question. I could talk, talk to you probably all day about it, but I would say my quick answer would be the Black community has always relied upon each other. And classical music is no different. We have the Gateways Music Festival. We have the Sphinx organization. We have Facebook groups. We have all sorts of, and even just picking up the phone and calling each other and talking like we did on this project. It's built into our DNA. And I think that that is what we rely upon to help each other. Because, you know, it's one thing when we all get together and play, but it's another thing when we go to our individual jobs and our lives where we are in many cases, the only one. Mm. And... I think, I think it's really important for anybody who's trying to, 
to heal and to take care of themselves, but in effect change on high levels in any area, it's important to have a network and a foundation. And the Black classical community definitely has that. So that's that's really how we keep it together, so to speak, for the things that we need to do for our community. I feel that, and I've felt for a long time, that orchestras are going to be forced into a corner to change because they're one of these last remaining institutions that have not I mean, they're living like in the, a lot of them are living in the 19th century almost. And in, I mean, I play French horn, which is usually a male dominated field. Like brass players are men. That's traditionally how it is. So like, you can only imagine what it's like being a minority and a woman playing this instrument. But I think that I cannot wait to see what's going to come from this pandemic. There are so many projects and things and discussions that I can't discuss yet, but like things are happening. And I really am excited to see how everything's going to change on the other side of this. And I think it's going to be for the better, way better. I'm, gl- I'm glad that you are hopeful. That gives me hope. How can we change in Columbia, Missouri? That is also a very complex question. And, you know, I'm not an expert, but I do know that in my life, I mean, let's draw some parallels from being a musician, right? French horn is really hard. <laughs> French horn is a hard instrument and I didn't learn it overnight. I took baby steps. So I learned how to hold it, and I learned how to blow into it, and I learned how to finger the notes, and I learned how to read the music. And I think that we can draw so many parallels from that. This is a big undertaking. This is unprecedented territory for many people. The Black Lives Matters movement and everything that it, it touches and it stands for. And I think the most important thing is Rome was not built in a day. We cannot simply say, well, I got to do everything or I'm going to do nothing. I think it's important. Let's start small. Let's just talk. But more importantly, let's listen. I think the art of listening is lost. And it's very important. I mean, I'm a classical musician. And a lot of my career is listening, right? But I'm talking about in-depth, patient understanding of somebody else listening. I think that's where we need to start. And through these conversations come ideas and actions. And from those actions comes change. And from those change, changes come bigger changes. But I think it's important to start small, to be patient with yourself and with others, and to be consistent and persistent. And that's what I do every day of my life and will do until the day I die. And I know there are many other people that are with me too. I would love to talk to more musicians of color about how they navigate the system and how we can make it better. Because this is a conversation that I've had with multiple composers who've been here, with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, with the development director there. We, we've talked every week about underrepresented voices, mostly we talk about women a lot. You know, women composers haven't been recognized through the ages and, and have been not just marginalized, but never encouraged. So how much music was never written because no one said, you got this. And it's the same for the musicians. It's the same for little girls in so many fields. It's the same for children of color across all the fields. No one says, you can do this. And that is so devastating to what we might be as a species. It is, but it's really important. I think what we are doing right now, the fact that you reached out to me, that you took the time to listen to me and to ask me, and I'm not an expert, but I, I live this life every day and have for as long as I've been alive. My dad has lived this life. You know, it's, I think it's important that people just start asking questions and listening and then 
sharing what they learn with other people. I, I always say, I'm not asking you to change your mind or your opinions or beliefs. I would never ask that of anybody. But what I am asking is that you just listen and really listen intently on learning something. There are a lot of people who think there is no problem. It's because they've never listened or even asked what the, the black experience is like for so many people in this country. I used to teach at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. It's an inner city school in Washington, D.C. And I had students who, I'm not even kidding you, were homeless. They didn't have a place to wash their clothes. They didn't have any food. So the school paid for all of that for them and provided that service for them. And some of them, I mean, some of them made it and some of them didn't. And we did more than was ever asked, like it's way more than your job description to help these kids. And when I consider how many of them did make it, it's a miracle. And, and there are just so many people that don't realize this is the reality for so many people. It's not a question of equality. We don't need equality. We need equity. These kids need more. They need these resources. They need funding for programs. Like, I mean, I had to struggle to get instruments for some of these kids. Some of these schools, they don't even teach French horn or cello or oboe or bassoon because they're just super expensive and they don't have them in these schools. I mean, it's people don't know. And I think they think, well, it's because it's a cultural, right? So like black people aren't interested in classical music. That's couldn't be farther from the truth. They're just not exposed to it because how are you supposed to be exposed to this high elitist art form that's not reaching out to them and not engaging them? It's unreal to me. I'm just trying to be patient and positive because that's who I am just by nature and just try to gently educate, not just through what I say, but what I do and these projects that I work on. And, you know, this piece was played on CBS News yesterday on the national news. It was at the tail end. It was like their happy story piece, but at least it's getting exposure. But people like you are what we need. We need people to ask these questions and just and it, you heard, it doesn't even have to be like, I'm angry. I, I mean, I am angry, but I'm also like, you know what? I'm patient and I'm calm. I always tell my students and my colleagues at school, because right now we're working on a lot of projects in school and I'm sort of leading it. And I tell them, I say, listen, everyone wants to call somebody out these days. But I said, I want to call y'all in. I want to call you into the discussion. I want to talk to you. I want to understand with you. I want to share with you. I don't want to scream anymore. We have this opportunity, the window's open, and it won't be open for long. This ha- this is not new. Like, this civil rights movement is a civil rights war. And the best way to win a war is to win each battle. And so we're in a battle right now with the recent events. And so the window's open, and now we need to, like, gain some traction now until it closes again with the next big thing. I mean, the election's coming up, right? So, like, everyone is going to forget about Black Lives Matters. And all you're going to see on the news is Donald Trump's face and Joe Biden, whoever else is the key players and all of it. And there's going to be some scandal. And like, it's all going to get swept under the rug. That's what always happens. But if people keep asking questions, if you keep having these interviews, if you keep digging and then other people see you doing it, that's what's going to keep this alive. Because this is bigger than just classical music. This is like every industry, right? I mean, our numbers are just horrible in terms of diversity, but... This isn't just classical music. And that's, I think, the important thing to draw from it. I wanted to mention to you, and I'm going to share this with you on Facebook. There's this group called the Young Concert Artists that I follow on Facebook. And there's a lot of leaders from classical music, some of who participated in the recording that we did. They are going to speak about the issues of the Black experience within classical music. And I think it'll be recorded too. So even if people can't attend it, you can still watch it online 
after its conclusion. But I highly recommend there's so many groups, Diana, that are out there that are talking about this. And there's so many resources. I think it's really helpful for people like you to share those resources Mm. so that people can educate themselves and they can listen. Perfect. So if anybody wants to find out more, they can look up young concert artists and see the recordings that are being made about talks that are surrounding the issue of how a black or Latinx musician can navigate what is such a white dominated system and how we can all be better at supporting our musicians. I've found a beautiful quote from Fredo that I just think is is so fabulous because it doesn't only speak to musicians, it speaks to us all listening to more classical music and, and thereby supporting musicians. He said, if every concert hall in America could allow a wide variety of repertoire to come in, could allow a different palette of music to be heard with influences from the East and the Middle East, from Africa, the Caribbean and Latin America, influences from the wealth of experiences shared by diverse immigrant populations to America, that would be classical music reimagined. Audience sizes will increase, not decrease, as the recent trend seems to indicate. And that is a beautiful idea. I agree. Let's make it happen. I I second that. (laughs) (laughs) Amanda, thank you so much for coming to chat. And please, please do come back and let's maybe expand the conversation. If you have other colleagues that we can bring into the conversation too, I would love to hear their Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And on we go to our next arts adventure, a deep dive into the world of books with, of course, my favourite compatriot and owner of Skylot Bookshop, Alex George. Good morning, Alex. We, of course, missed you terribly on last week's show, although talking to Jill Orr about her new book, The Full Scoop, was pretty special too. Did you miss us? Oh, very much. Very much. It's (laughs) lovely to be back, though. I'm assuming Jill's new book has been racing out the door since its official launch yesterday. Yes, it it has. And I was actually in the shop and she was there signing piles and piles of them. And we sold a good few and some people stopped by as well. So it's it's a weird time, as, as we've spoken about in the past, to be publishing a book. And both Jill and I have gone through this, but there's still some fun to be had. And, you know, Jill, she's a wonderful a wonderful writer and a wonderful character and personality. And so she was, uh, I think she was enjoying it. I'm sure she was. So in the space of your one week away from the show, the world has undergone another much needed shifting of societal tectonic plates. And we are looking, hopefully, at a new time of learning and listening. And because I'm a bit old school, my first instinct is to turn to books for learning. Do you think bookstores are often a bellwether for how society is feeling? I think so. You know, you're not alone. I think that people uh, more and more actually are turning to books um, because there's a limit to the amount of time they can spend inhaling information any other way. And, And also the thing about books is that there is some sort of guarantee or stamp of quality because of the the process that it takes to actually turn thoughts and words into a book there's an editorial process that has to be vetted and fact-checked and all of those things whereas anybody can throw any, any kind of nonsense up on the internet so so there's i think a degree of trust that comes with books that doesn't necessarily come obviously it depends upon the publication if you're looking at online things but not everything as we all know that we read online <laughs> as abraham lincoln said <laughs> you can't believe everything you read online uh, so, um, <laughs> 
so uh, it's, it's um, you know, uh, so I do think that people do, and particularly in times like this, they revert back to to books. And we've certainly seen that as have bookstores across the country and publishers across the country. There are some wonderful books out there addressing many of the issues that have been thrown up over the last couple of weeks. And a lot of the books that we're talking about, for example, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, are published by relatively small presses. And that in and of itself is, is, is an issue that we could talk about. But they've been struggling to keep up with the demand. It's a myth that all publishers have piles and piles and piles of books stacked away in warehouses just waiting to be shipped to bookstores. It doesn't quite work like that. And so the publishers have been struggling to keep up with the demand and to print new books. And obviously, that's a wonderful position in a way because people are very hungry to to educate themselves. Uh, but it's been a struggle for us as booksellers because, you know, we sold out of a great many of these books almost immediately and have been have been running around trying to find more copies where we can so that we can get them into people's hands. Well, let's talk a little bit about publishing, as, as you mentioned it. I do worry about the arts in general. I think we like to think we're all really liberal and open to diverse voices. But, you know, it doesn't matter what art form you look at, white men are the dominant group. And I have no idea what that looks like in the world of publishing. Do you have any, any idea or any numbers on gender and racial disparity within the world of publishing? Yeah, it isn't the case in publishing that white men dominate everything. In publishing, it's white women who <laughs> dominate everything. <laughs> there was a survey done last year, a diversity survey in the publishing industry, and um, 76% of the respondents identified as white, 74% of respondents identified as cis women. So that gives you a very clear sense of what we're looking at. And in fact, on Monday of this week, the publishing industry actually arranged a day of action to protest the lack of diversity in publishing, both within the industry and in the authors who are being published. So it's something that the industry is, is I think, aware of. Of course, being aware of something is one thing, but having the wherewithal to make a sort of systemic change of the kind required is, is another. But I live in hope that, that that change will be on its way. Well, today we're going to look at books that do talk to the black experience of life in America, some of which are being hailed as required reading. Talk us through the books you would like to highlight today, Alex. Yeah, well, I sort of broke these down into different things. And the, the first one, I guess you could you could widely just call it testimony. And one of the most important books of, of any kind, uh, not just in the context of what we're talking about today, that's been published in the last couple of decades is called Between the World and Me by Tanahisi Coates, which is a small book. It's a beautiful book. It's an incredibly powerful book. And it's couched as a letter to his son. And as uh, Tony Morrison puts it, it sort of talks about the hazards and hopes of black male life. And this is a book that is, I found, just heartbreaking, uh, but also very bracing as well. Because although he writes absolutely beautifully and deeply thoughtfully, um, the text is sort of brutally alive to the actuality of the physical threat that uh, minorities face every day. And I'm just going to read you a tiny, a tiny bit of it, if I may. But, but all our phrasing... Race relations, racial chasm, racial injustice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, 
that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. Mm. I mean, I, I read this book several years ago now, and that is what I remember most viscerally about it is this, the violence to the black body that racism very often engenders. It's, it's a shocking read, but it's incredibly important and to stay a fabulous book. That's on the non-fiction side. And then there are a couple of novels. Uh, one that was published earlier this year by Gabriel Bump called Everywhere You Don't Belong. And Gabriel actually came to, to Skylark and, and, and uh, talked about his book. Uh, it's a debut novel, and it tells the story of a young African-American who lives in Chicago, and he actually is involved in some riots there and uh, has some interactions with the police. And uh, he escapes Chicago and comes to the Midwest and, in fact, actually comes to Columbia, Missouri and spends some time here. But it's a beautiful book. It's it's quite funny, but it was uh, an eye-opening read for me and just, again, the sense of what African-Americans go through every day of their lives. And from my position of white privilege, I'm, I'm never going to know that. And I understand that. But um, reading these novels or indeed memoirs can sort of perhaps give us some insight to some of that. And then another book along similar lines uh, isn't actually out for a couple of months. It's called Luster by Raven Leilani. And that this is um, written from the point of view of a young black woman. And it uh, rather like Gabe's book, it's, it's hysterically funny but also very thought-provoking. And again, I mean, it made me think and it made me mad and I enjoyed it enormously and it opened up a whole other sense of, of a, a different world that I'm not familiar with. So all of those books provide, if you like, testimony. And then, in, then moving on to a different kind of a book, which is a historical context. One of the books that is most in demand at the moment is called Stamped from the Beginning, the Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram X. Kendi. And this is a really detailed chronicle of racist thinking, and it examines how it has become entrenched in the fabric of American society through various institutional practices. And it starts at the very, very beginning. Actually, it talks about Ham, one of Noah's sons, as the origin of where sort of black people came from. But that's the sort of one of the stories that was perpetuated very, very early on. And this this really talks about everything from the 1400s onwards. And it and it does it through an analysis of certain key figures in the narrative, such as Thomas Jefferson and W. E. B. Du Bois, and and the final one is actually Angela Davis. It is a really amazing. It's a compelling read. Um, it won the National Book Award, uh, quite rightly, and is an incredibly comprehensive history of the way that racism has come to sort of exist in, in this country. And then finally, in terms of how we might address some of these things, there's a book, again, very much in demand at the moment called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. And this unpacks and lays bare the defensiveness that many white people exhibit when they are challenged about their attitudes towards race and confronted by their own white privilege. It's a really interesting book. It's a short book, and it just looks at the way that people react and how dialogue can be inhibited, and thereby the status quo is actually preserved. 
And it does suggest a way that we can change the way that we respond to these things and actually have a more constructive engagement with these questions. And uh, that is highly recommended. Thank you so much, Alex. I know you have all of these books in stock right now and are probably struggling to keep them in stock, but that is, that is good news that so many people are wanting to read and improve and learn. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Alex, we'll chat again next week, but for now, thank you so much and goodbye. Thanks, Diana. And already we are at our last stop on today's Lap of the Local Arts. And we're off up to 1025 East Walnut Street to chat with Sega Browder's Gallery Director, Hannah Reeves. Hello, Hannah. It is lovely to have you back on the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So for the first time in three months, the Sega Browder's walls do have art upon them, which makes the June exhibit the first show where a Sega Browder show has been fully online and also in your physical gallery. Has this felt like a doubling of your workload? Yes, it has straightforwardly been a doubling. (laughs) Um, Yes, it's been a double effort. Um, And that's in part because we are not quite... Uh, fully opening our doors to the public, we are not going back to normal yet. And so we need to retain all of those really great avenues that we spent so much time developing over the past couple of months, just like so many companies did, for people to connect with work online, or at least to preview work online. And we do have the work on the walls. And I am very carefully and slowly starting to take individual masked appointments this month. That is good to know that things aren't quite back to normal. I think a a lot of people are still comfortable in the slightly abnormal world. We talked in a previous show about how having a fully online presence elevates your availability to a global audience. So I'm wondering if maybe the pandemic has had a little bit of a silver lining for you as a gallery. I I think that it has. That is actually true. It's not something that we would have expected. But, you know, one function or one, you know, result of the pandemic is that the big art fairs were all canceled in the last few months. And so collectors worldwide are going online and to online platforms like Artsy, but also just finding galleries like us, you know, through our website, just finding us online and and shopping in this new way. Um, the demand really is still there. It's just that the avenues for purchasing have shrunk. So uh, it really, it has been okay. We're, we're pretty lucky. I know you talk on your, on your website about being able to do worldwide shipping. Have you actually done that? Have you been sending things around the world as a result of your online presence? Yes, we are. Shipping is a little bit more complicated um, right now. There are some additional delays and fees still, uh, more so through April. And so there were more challenges and it was frankly just a little bit more expensive for everyone involved. But yes, we are constantly shipping um, all over the world. That is why we have a full-time person, uh, Rachel, who's our director of operations, who handles all of the logistics of our physical inventory, which is actually pretty huge. I'm in the storage room right now, (laughs) surrounded by about 700 works of art. And those are the pieces that are not on the walls. So keeping track of those and then at any given time pulling out something that someone is looking at online it's a different it's a different kind of task than standing with someone in the gallery and, and discussing, you know, a piece that's on the wall. But yes, we've shipped I'm trying to remember, we sh- right at the beginning of the pandemic, we shipped a piece to Italy and it was rather complicated to work out. But yeah, there's there's constantly work going out really all over the world. I want to ask you a little bit as I'm talking to all arts organizations about how they are looking at maybe affecting change in 
Uh, as a result of the murder of George Floyd and the swell of voices who have had enough of racial inequality, I think many organisations within the arts are looking at how they have helped to perpetuate white hierarchy and have failed to elevate marginalised voices. And I wondered what discussions you had had at Sega Browdis around uh, assisting with uh, elevation of marginalised voices. You know, first of all, I think it's important to say that, like, our field is art and we're here and this is what we do. But the art world is just this little tiny corner of the activism that needs to happen and and of the picture of change that needs to happen. And so we can see, you know, a few steps that we can take immediately. We can see the need to learn and figure out other things to do. But even when we're maximizing our efforts in our little corner, you know, I think it's really important for all of us as individuals to remember that the art world is just this little, little corner of the inequality. And that's not to absolve us at all. It's just to say that each of us as individuals, but then also as companies, we have to be looking at some bigger picture avenues for donations to organizations that are not necessarily arts oriented and amplifying messages that are not only made through artistic avenues, although that is our specialty. So that's kind of where we're focused as a company. You know, so for us, you know, I think it starts with donations. And I think then there's the work that has to continue that we've been doing that we just have to keep plugging away at, which is to really make our space an inclusive space. Mm. That is multifaceted, but a big piece of that is showing the work of people of color so that people feel welcome if you come and you see, you know, something that you can connect with. Like that's our goal overall. And so we know that we need for that to be more true when it comes to the people of color in our community who who come into the gallery. So we've been working for the last four years to increase the percentage of uh, marginalized voices in our roster in a way that is sensitive, but also um, consistent with, you know, our aesthetic and our mission as a company, work that we really always believe in. So we're finding those artists and increasing those numbers. We really have to double down on that because we're just not, we're not done. The thing is too, we're not going to be done anytime soon. So um, we can't expect it to be instantaneous. Uh, it's really going to take a lot of a lot of persistence. And so, again, that's kind of one facet of like how we can that's one of the things we can see to do to help make our space more inclusive. There are a huge number of other things. And then there are things that we can't even see yet to do that. It's going to take more connecting and actually getting a little further in becoming a better welcoming space before we even sort of like are able to hear and and learn some other steps. And so it's, it's just really going to be an ongoing, very serious effort. Right. You have a, a new show that's just opened, the June exhibit, and you have, I think, five artists in that. Do you want to tell us quickly about the artists that you do have coming into the gallery and, and what we what we can see by appointment or online? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So Daniela Adames is a, a Barcelona artist, actually born in Colombia, but she's been working in Barcelona for her professional life. These are really interesting paintings. They're portraits, but they're also sort of like interior scenes 
beautiful use of pattern, but she is really intentionally um, distorting and kind of playing with the proportions of her figures in order to give you more of a feeling of uh, their personality and their idiosyncrasies. There's one of these in the window. So this is another piece. Like if you walk by, instead of using the windows as signage this month, I just filled them with artwork. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, if you walk by or drive by, you will see, you know, these snippets of the June exhibit. One of Daniela's pieces is uh, in the window. Let's see. Chellis Baird is a New York artist who is a former fashion designer. And really, she talks in her statement, I I love this, about dressing the canvas. So she does start with these substrates that are usually kind of rectangular, rectilinear, but she's like wrapping them and twisting and stuffing and building these very three-dimensional, very textural surfaces. They're fully abstract. They're often painted with just touches of color. And you just get this immense sense of texture from these. They're really, really interesting. There's also there's a three of those together in one of the the windows of the gallery. Let's see. Uh, Seth Smith is a painter uh, born outside of Wichita. He's been based in Kansas City for a long time. We love having him in June because his most popular series centers around like vacation aesthetics. And sometimes even like the silliness of making yourself belong in a place like a like a cheap motel with a pool. <laughs> so he just gives you these scenes that really give you a feeling and a kind of kind of a multisensory experience that is nostalgic, especially for summer. Ellen Heck is one of our collective, I think, favorite artist. She was one of those pie in the sky artists that we followed and loved on Instagram and like reached out to and, and actually like talked her into showing with us. And she brings a series of prints that are about printmakers or about printmaking. And so there are these beautiful scenes that are a combination of like etching, aquatint, sometimes woodcut, beautiful palette that's kind of a, a pastel subdued set of hues. So lovely series from Ellen Heck that is recognizably hers, but uh, really different from the last series of hers that we showed. And then finally, Marnie Gable, um, who we're also showing for the second time, often does figural work, humans and animals. And my favorite piece in this series is a horse that is that has like a pregnant female figure embossed and painted and drawn onto the three-dimensional sculpture of the, the horse. This whole series is about dreams, and they're made very recently, and she's thinking about the weird dreams that we're all having, uh, the pandemic dreams, which is like this phenomenon that now people are already studying um, and like collecting data on like pandemic dreams. So she's thinking about these dream archetypes and uh, these spaces where things seem real but aren't and sort of connect with some vastness of the the cosmos and maybe even connect us we're all having these same recurring weird dreams Mm -hmm, the pregnant dream you know (laughs) i'm in that category (laughs) so um we need to make an appointment to come and see these works is that pretty straightforward to do yeah, just email me, hannah at com. I also answer all of the messenger services on social media. I'm feeling pretty cautious about it. So I will say I am trying <laughs> this, like trying it out. I want, you know, our local folks to connect with me and, and come and see this work safely. But if we see a spike, you know, in COVID cases, if we see that it becomes unsafe to bring people together, we may need to 
back off of the in-person contact again. And I think we all just kind of have to be open to that. Sure. Well, Hannah, I think you're going to send me a little video clip of some of the works in the gallery, which we will post on our Facebook page so people can see a few of the works as you're wandering through the gallery. That would be awesome. Will do. Thank you, Hannah. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Diana. And once again, that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more news from the local art scene. And until then... Stay arty, Columbia.